Gutted to open today's show discussing the death of Jay Briscoe, known to family as Jamin Pugh. He died Tuesday at age 38 after being involved in a two-car accident while driving his young daughters on an open road. He and the other driver died at the scene, with his daughters initially being in critical condition, rushed to the hospital, but now thankfully stable. It is believed the other driver swerved into his lane. Whether you ever watched Ring of Honor or not, uh, this is obviously devastating for the wrestling community, with the only silver lining, of course, being that his daughter's condition appears headed in the right direction and their mother was not in the car. But again, that's just a silver lining. Uh, Jay began in CZW, but became well-known in ROH, where he was a 13-time tag team champion with his brother, Mark. They were also the current champions, having won the title a month ago at ROH Final Battle when they defeated FTR in a match of the year candidate dog collar match that was five stars by any measure. Eight of those tag team title reigns came before Jay Briscoe won his first ROH singles championship by defeating Kevin Steen, now Kevin Owens, in 2013. He only held that title for a few months due to a contract dispute, but eventually re-signed with ROH and won it a second time in 2014. His nine-month reign with that title was the third longest in the last decade. Jay also made appearances in Impact and New Japan, but he and his brother never ultimately got signed by WWE. Despite having a tryout in 2009, they were ultimately deemed too rough around the edges to be signed. But Jay's career was not without controversy, as he made a string of derogatory comments about LGBTQ people and same-sex marriage in 2013, shortly after he won that first ROH championship. They served as an albatross throughout the last decade of his career. He spent the better part of the last 10 years legitimately apologizing and atoning for those comments, and he had dozens of wrestlers speak out on his behalf, saying he was a loving person who made mistakes, had an ideology that he has since learned from and improved upon. Yet, those comments nevertheless made him unsignable for WWE and even forced Tony Khan to keep the Briscoes off of TNT and TBS, which is why they were never a part of AEW. And it's unfortunate to bring that up, but it is a significant part of his career story. It won't be how he's remembered, though. That will be as a loving father and husband who was one half of one of the greatest tag teams in the modern era. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these car times. With episode 396 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and beyond the depth of Jay Briscoe, which we will continue to discuss on today's show. We will be breaking down everything that happened this week across NXT and AEW. More on that to come momentarily. It is wild reading that episode number here at the start of the show that we are just a couple weeks away from episode 400 here of Getting Over, and we are going to use that opportunity to utilize that new equipment that all of you, our Getting Overheads, uh, contributed funds that went towards 
the purchase of that equipment. Almost all of it has arrived. I'm waiting for one more piece and the expectation is we will debut it for you right after the Royal Rumble, that first show after the Royal Rumble. But that is not what we are here to discuss today. Today, we are here, of course, to talk about professional wrestling, namely NXT and AEW. So let's get right into the show with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. They are super important to us. If you leave one of those reviews, we will read it for you live right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for news, analysis, episode drops, highlights. We're talking wrestling all week long. We also sometimes do live breaking news shows on Twitter Spaces. That's in addition to, of course, our instant reaction and instant analysis podcast that we do right here in our normal feed. The point is, there is every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, we are going to jump into today's show, uh, talk NXT off the jump. We'll go to AEW. On the back end, we've started with AEW uh, over most of the recent weeks because really they've been developing a lot of really interesting stuff. But this week, I did want to go over NXT, which I felt was a bounce back episode. Uh, AEW really solid across the board with Dynamite and Rampage. They're really putting the focus on the in-ring product, which I'm finding interesting uh, coming out of what was such a storyline-driven uh, end of the year into 2023. And they've kind of turned the page a little bit. And maybe part of that is because they're a good ways out until their next pay-per-view. So they're focusing on matches and they're still developing those storylines. But it does create less to talk about and ruminate about uh, when the storylines aren't that deep or long-standing, really, is what I'm trying to get across. But nevertheless, as always, we'll talk NXT and AEW, and there are timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you feel like it, if you only watch or follow one brand, hit the episode description, find the timestamp. You can jump to it. But as always, I do hope you listen to the entire show. Now, we are going to start with NXT. And before we get into everything that happened on the show, I did want to note, because this episode largely, of course, is about the death of Jay Briscoe. That is how we started with the cold open. WWE on Tuesday night announced his death live on NXT during the show. I just wanted to point this out. This was pure class from Shawn Michaels. It came in the middle of the broadcast. And not only that, there's reports that WWE actually canceled a funeral segment that was scheduled for the show with New Day and Pretty Deadly. So as we're going to talk about in a moment with New Day, that's the reason they were dressed the way they were dressed. Uh, WWE didn't have to say anything at all here, let alone the night of it happening, but they called this on the fly. Remember, this is a guy who has been a mainstay of the industry for the better part of the last two decades, as we already discussed, but he never even stepped foot in a WWE ring on any type of television. It really hit hard when they announced this on TV because the news had just broken on social media shortly before, literally during the show itself. And for WWE to turn around and acknowledge it that quickly, even though I'm sure people knew about it before the show began, you know, because within the industry, it's really hard to keep something like that a secret. And he certainly has a lot of friends in WWE and NXT. But for them to change plans for the show and make that announcement and do so in a very, uh, you know, 
touching and brief manner, not kind of lingering on it. I just wanted to give kudos to Shawn Michaels, NXT, and the entire team for doing that. So I just want to say that off the top. We're going to go and get into what happened on NXT. Uh, Vic Joseph held sit-down interviews with Grayson Waller and Braun Breaker. Footage was shown of the ring rope failing earlier in the match prior to when it failed in the finish. Waller pointed out how his rolling pump knee nearly ended Breaker's reign and only built his confidence for their rematch. Breaker later admitted that Waller caught him with the knee, but remained confident he would win their rematch. Uh, Braun said he's not only going to win the steel cage match, he wouldn't even consider escaping in it because he just wants to beat Waller's ass in the ring. He credited Waller with being a top-tier trash talker, but got amped up talking about leaving Waller laying in the middle of the ring. These were two really well-executed interviews. Vic did a good job. Both guys sold their parts well. It did increase the intensity and my interest level in the title match, and some of the replays made last week's booking look a little less ridiculous. Just a little less. Uh, But there's still a few weeks to go until we get to Vengeance Day. They can get this more hyped. And I hope they figure out ways to do it because it's really not hitting for me the way a feud between them should. And really, the rushing of this first match was completely unnecessary, doing it at New Year's Evil. There's so many other things that could have been booked in that spot. Giving us that match with the finish they gave, it took the wind out of the sails for what could have been a well-developed and long-built storyline for their eventual match at Vengeance Day. So I'm still disappointed at what we got previously, but I did like the way they handled it Handled it on NXT this week. Uh, Toxic Attraction bragged about calling their shot last week, saying no one believed in them, uh, that they could win on their own, and that their revenge tour is now on. They talked trash to Roxanne Perez when Lyra Valkyria blamed Cora Jade for her not being in their spot at the end of the Battle Royal, and she said Toxic only went about it this way because neither of them can beat Roxanne on their own. They attacked, Perez made the save, Lyra I thought was extremely solid on the mic here, Toxic, despite all this time, they still struggle to sound natural when they're speaking. And I'm wondering if it's just because their stuff is scripted and they're not given the opportunity to kind of go out there and just say whatever they want, or maybe they have been in the past and it didn't work, so that's why they're scripted. But one way or another, they just do not sound natural on the mic. So we got Perez and Valkyria against Toxic. Lyra went on a huge run, and Cora Jade ran down to push her off the top rope and taunt Roxy. Valkyria went after Jade, attacking her into the backstage area and leaving Perez shorthanded. JC Jane actually wiped out Gigi Dolan while trying their tag team finisher. That opened the door for Roxy to hit Pop Rocks and get the win in what was a surprisingly short match. Something else must have run long on the show. I believe they had to have cut a couple minutes out of this match. But what I found most interesting was the difference in talent and ability when comparing Roxy and Lyra with JC and Gigi. It was stark. And that's not to insult the toxic ladies. It's just to say Perez and Valkyria are leagues better than both of them in the ring and on the mic. And I knew that going in, but to see it directly contrasted the way it was was kind of startling given the other three are all the exact same age and Roxy is younger than them, nearly five years younger than them at 21. The women's division overall has a really bright future in NXT. It's just interesting not to see JC and Gigi develop the way I thought they would, given the amount of time they had atop the division previously with Mandy Rose within Toxic Attraction. So I don't, you know, I kept talking about, hey, maybe they're going to get called up. Maybe they're going to get paired with Sonya Deville on the main roster. Toxic's done, blah, blah, blah. But I got to tell you, with Mandy gone, calling them up, 
it's less of a need. And I would maybe keep them down for another year and see if they can continue developing. You already have the KCs, Casey, uh, Kent Nazaro, now Katana Chance, and Caden Carter as a tag team, the champions. They're ready to get called up. There's an Alba Fire is ready to get called up. Maybe Toxic shouldn't. Maybe they should be sticking around there, uh, seeing what they can do as a tag team and maybe even developing as singles wrestlers. I'd be interested to see that. So yeah, my mind did get changed on this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Tyler Bate fought Javier Bernal. There was an interview segment with Roxy and Lyra that Bernal interrupted. Uh, Mackenzie Mitchell was obviously angry about that. Given they were all in the middle of talking and doing an interview, he made an ass out of himself again. It was funny. But this match was Bates' return to the United States and his debut as a full-time NXT US member. Bate hit an exploder suplex, a standing shooting star press, his rebound lariat, and a Tyler Driver 97 that Bernal unfortunately botched not once but twice. Nevertheless, Bate got the win. Bernal did not look good here. The finish was extremely rough solely because of him. Bate obviously looked like his normal self. I, you know, I thought this was going to be a really damn good match, and it was actually kind of disappointing to no fault of Tyler Bates. Apollo Crews and Axiom fought Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams. Crews press slammed Axiom out of the ring into the heels pretty early and easily. They then hit stereo double German suplexes. Crews hit a standing shooting star press on Melo inside as Axiom took Trick out with the golden ratio outside. Apollo then dodged Melo's nothing but net, folding him into a trap seated pinning combination for I guess what you would consider to be an upset just given Melo's profile in NXT. They later all talk trash to each other in the parking lot with Apollo planning to go to their barber shop next week. If you remember last week, uh, Mello and Trick visited his diner. Uh, Trick hysterically pointed out Cruz doesn't have any hair, so why is he going to the barber shop? Uh, definitely a surprising result in the match. I presume it was done to continue their feud with a big match at Vengeance Day, maybe for a number one contendership. Then Mello can win that, ultimately move on to face Braun Breaker for the NXT title at Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend. Great action, bell to bell. Trick is continuing his clear improvement in the ring. And I like the solid parking lot segment as well. I thought that was pretty fun. Uh, Alba Fire fought Sol Ruka. Isla Dawn appeared on the crow's nest, distracting Fire just like a couple minutes into the match. That allowed Ruka to catch her with Soul Snatcher, the rope-assisted flipping cutter out of the corner for the upset victory for the Neophyte. Uh, she was mentioned two to three times as the fastest rising star in the women's division, which... I guess that's true. I don't see much of an argument there. Uh, later backstage, Alba threatened a referee with her bat when Carter and Chance tried calming her down. Fire talked about losing title matches and getting beaten by rookies, confusing her. Basically, she's lacking belief in herself. They told her to chill out and all be okay. So she just kind of turned on them and suggested going after the tag team titles, even if she doesn't have a partner. Now, Alba taking another loss would normally be infuriating to me, but it was excused here both because of the distraction and because they're clearly using it as part of a storyline. I just don't understand what they're doing with her. Like we keep thinking she's reached a conclusion to her time in NXT only for the next week, her to still be there. Maybe this is the final storyline and it's all gonna get resolved at Vengeance Day and or Stand and Deliver, but you usually go out on your back when you leave. And what I think they're building towards is a scenario where Fire enters the tag team match without a partner, Dawn joins her during the match, and maybe they even win the titles and hold them for a short period of time before having a falling out. But at this point, everything I think I know about her future is clearly wrong. So maybe it's just time I stop guessing and enjoy seeing her on television, even if I don't really love the way she's been booked. But we're gonna see if this transpires the way I expect, or perhaps she just loses again to Isla Dawn and 
goes up to the main roster. But at this point, like I said, every guess I have about Alba Fire and her future, it's been wrong. So maybe just time I stop guessing. Uh, Briggs and Jensen fought Gallus. The ringside padding got pulled up by Gallus with Jensen eventually getting back body dropped into it. Briggs went on a solo run until noticing Jensen wasn't mobile with Fallon Henley checking on him. Kiana James then ran down as Jensen demanded to be helped up. Gallus, though, they took out Briggs with a jump kick power slam combo for the win. It was later determined Jensen just had the win knocked out of him. Henley came in angry that James was out there claiming she had ulterior motives, caring about him. Jensen pointed out, there's nothing I can give her. You got your bar back. So what's she coming to me for? I'm just some dude. Uh, But she refused to stand by him. Fallon later changed her mind and apologized to Jensen, even going so far as to make amends by getting a tag team match made with James as her partner. That made him happy. A solid match with some storytelling infused. It's good to see the Gallus boys back in NXT. There's not much more to be said other than the post-match segments were self-explanatory. I'll note that, and I think this is the second time in the last two or three weeks I've said this, they all seem to be much more natural speaking and acting in front of the camera. And that's a positive. It's almost like a, a switch was flipped because up until like a month ago, I was still looking at this whole foursome and just kind of saying, man, this is rough. And, you know, this is like D-level acting, but I think they're at like a C-level now. They're they're slowly, uh, you know, you know, making gains and that's positive for all them. Let's not forget, you know, when we review NXT and we talk about NXT, on this show, we're discussing it in a very different way than we do Raw, SmackDown, and AEW Dynamite. It is a developmental show. The purpose is for people to figure out gimmicks, learn how to talk in the mic and in front of the camera, and also really learn how to wrestle to many of them. Sol Ruka, Ruka uh, being a great example of that. So, you know, when I'm judging Briggs and Jensen, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying, hey, look, they're not developing maybe at the level that we expected them to. But as of right now, it does look like those two. Uh, Henley and James, they're making progress, and that's positive. Uh, New Day came out looking dapper in shirts, slacks, and ties. They were wearing mostly black with a little white. Uh, This, again, was for what was a planned funeral segment that obviously got changed at the last minute due to what we discussed earlier. Uh, They exclaimed that they were done with Pretty Deadly and would be facing Gallus at Vengeance Day given they won the gauntlet. Uh, PD came out in neon, all neon. They were angry about jumping through hoops to no end. Gallus were next out, threatening to take the titles from New Day. So those four squared off with PD eventually attacking New Day and Gallus, but the other four cleared PD out of the ring as New Day and Gallus brawled in a chaotic scene. It seemed like this is going to wind up a triple threat at Vengeance Day, and then it was announced later in the show it's going to be a triple threat at Vengeance Day. So now we look for an opening for New Day to possibly drop the titles by someone else being pinned. And that's probably the right booking at the end of the day. I did think there was a chance New Day held the titles all the way through Stand and Deliver. But clearly, I think they just want them on that Vengeance Day show since it is in Charlotte. They're trying to sell tickets. They want some main roster talent on there. They don't necessarily need that same talent WrestleMania weekend. Or they could use different talent for WrestleMania weekend, which is still a ways away. And yeah, you know, it would be nice to get New Day involved in something significant on SmackDown again. So this was fun, entertaining as usual. The match with these three teams should absolutely bang. And I know it's not going to be the main event of Vengeance Day, but I would not be surprised if it stole the show at Vengeance Day. Tony D'Angelo and Stax were at the bridge where two dimes disappeared. And D'Angelo literally threw two dimes in the water, saying it represents an end and a beginning. Tony put Stax over for his loyalty and mentioned the Dijak failure. So Stax, he thought he was done. He thought he was about to get whacked. 
Instead, D'Angelo promoted him to underboss and gave him a leather jacket with his family crest. You know, most of these are like notably corny, the stuff with D'Angelo. This one played for me, and I'm wondering if this is maybe to make them equals or near equals in a tag team, because that would be a real appropriate place for those two to go. The tag team division could use a fresh team, and I think they would be able to thrive together, because as well of a job as D'Angelo does in this gimmick, Stax also does a really good job doing the Italian-American mafioso type of deal. So they do work well together, and I would like to see them as a tag team and see what that looks like. So I do believe that is the direction they are going. Uh, Dijak set his sights on Wes Lee and the North American title in a promo package, saying he had no shot of walking out of Vengeance Day with the strap, he of course being Wes Lee. Decent enough from Dijak, I maintain the gimmick is two or three decades past its prime. Footage was shown of Tiffany Stratton being kicked out of a locker room that was once hers, but has now been taken over by all of the NXT women. It was Indy Hartwell standing up to her. Stratton was angry and out to prove she's the only woman that matters in NXT. She also said she was surprised Indy was still there. And yeah, really, aren't we all? Maybe she'll get the Royal Rumble call up, but it doesn't look like Candice LeRae has a partner already on Raw. This was a fine backstage segment overall. The Creed brothers in their dojo were arguing like children about which of them get to fight Jinder Mahal. Ivy Nile stepped in with some tough love, telling them to grow a set and get back to being themselves, not what they have become over the last couple of months. All of them were great here. Ivy was notably solid laying down the law for her guys. It was a needed moment, kind of both in kayfabe and reality because they really had become some whiny bitches on television. So her kind of knocking them back into order makes a lot of sense. What I do find interesting though, is Damon Kemp has completely disappeared from NXT. Roderick Strong, who may have been nursing a real injury at some point, he has disappeared completely from NXT and WWE in totality. There was a report at one point that he had asked for a release. This was before the angle with the Creed brothers and Kemp and all that really started to heat up. And they're just not on TV. So I really wonder what Kemp's doing. And I really wonder what Strong is doing right now. Uh, Thea Hale fought Valentina for Royce. Hudson, uh, Duke Hudson that is, was pumping up Hale for her match when Andre Chase stormed in showing footage from NXT Anonymous, which is that Twitter account we've mentioned, that had Hudson talking shit about Chase behind his back. They decided to discuss it later due to uh, Thea Hale's match coming up. Electra Lopez came out two minutes into the match. Hale hit a standing moonsault before they collided with running crossbodies. Lopez handed Feroy's brass knuckles with the referee distracted. She threw them to the referee, decided not to use them, only to eat a snapmare driver as Thea got her first ever TV victory. Chase in the post-match just stared a hole into Hudson after the bell, so we'll probably get more on that next week. Thea's really talented despite only doing this for a limited amount of time, and I liked what we saw from her in the match. Later backstage, Lopez criticized Royce for not taking the advantage. Royce said she doesn't cheat, but Lopez told her to watch her match against Wendy Chu next week and maybe she'll pick up what Lopez is trying to lay down. It was actually a really solid backstage segment with two women who have really not been utilized much and need to be featured more. So I am curious to see what happens with them together. And lastly, Stevie Turner introduced her streamer gimmick, making comments over the Women's Battle Royal from last week. She actually pointed out a couple of alliances that I missed during the match and said she would be debuting soon. It's an interesting gimmick overall. She delivered it mostly well, The whole thing just kind of comes off a bit too polished for being a streamer. And she spoke way, way too slow during this promo package. So they got to tighten this whole thing up, but they do have something there. And I am interested to see how it develops. 
And really, that was it from NXT. Uh, look, I, I mentioned last week that New Year's Evil was just a massive disappointment. This was NXT getting back to what it normally is on a weekly show. Just some high quality matches, a lot of development stuff, and a lot of storytelling really throughout the entire show, which I appreciated because that's really what I tuned into NXT for. I want to see young talent develop and I want to see storylines. That's why I watch the show. That is what they delivered to us this week. So with NXT now in the books, let's go ahead and move over to AEW Dynamite and AEW Rampage. I should note regarding Jay Briscoe that AEW opened Dynamite with a graphic. Then like nine minutes into the show, they mentioned his death on commentary saying they would talk more about it later, but they never did until the very end of Dynamite, literally as the show was going off the air. Now, this is not a means of comparison, obviously, between WWE and AEW, but I was kind of surprised that WWE took more of a specific period of time out of its broadcast to address it than AEW did. The reason for this is presumably because Warner, uh, you know, the owners of, of TBS and, and certainly TNT, um, just as we mentioned earlier, don't want the Briscoes on their stations. So they allowed them to do the quick memorial, but didn't want them to do an entire memorial show or spend time talking about them or honoring them. There were individual things that happened during the show that wrestlers did on their own. But I just really, it was kind of odd watching that show, expecting there to be a thing for the Briscoes and they're not actually being one. Now, Tony Khan did set up a very special show that was taped immediately after Dynamite. It's going to air free. It's a ROH tribute to Jay Briscoe. And that's going to be by far the most comprehensive honoring of Jay Briscoe, who again died far too young at age 38. So again, that's supposed to be free. I don't exactly know when it's going to be released. I presume by the end of the week, maybe early next week, but you will be able to watch that. I know there were a number of matches, a couple really interesting matches on that. And I saw they did graphics and a whole bunch of stuff in the arena. So I am kind of curious to see uh, what that looks like when it is eventually released. And I'm sure based on what they did for Brody Lee a couple years ago, I'm sure it'll be notably touching. So with that, let's go ahead and get to Dynamite and Rampage, everything that went down. We're going to break it down by storyline rather than uh, in order. So Dynamite, Hangman Page talked to Renee Paquette, but didn't really say much of anything at first. She related that John Moxley told her Hangman brings out the best in him and that Mox both despises and cherishes him. Hangman just repeated himself, what he said already, and he told Mox that if he has something to say, he should say it to his face, which was really an odd response to someone saying that someone else cherishes them. Hangman then talked about mending fences. He was purposely vague in doing so. And then after the interview was supposedly over, Hangman asked if Mox was okay. Renee said he's always injured, so it was nothing new. Hangman was then going to send a message to him, but he decided to change his mind and not do it. This was a better follow-up than I expected from last week's match. I'm pleased they didn't play too much into the quote-unquote concussion part of it, at least initially. Hangman definitely intrigued with the mending fences line and seemingly a little bit of guilt for hurting Mox. It seems obvious the rubber match is going to be at Revolution, so they still have plenty of time to get there. On Dynamite, Brian Danielson fought Bandito. There was some nice mat wrestling early. Bandito hit a solid torneo and lifted Brian from a 90-degree angle into a delayed vertical suplex. Brian got him in a label lock extended, but Bandito reached the ropes. Danielson got double knees up on the Eddie Guerrero tribute frog splash, but Bandito came back with an inverted go-to-sleep. After a bit, Bandito hit a Spanish fly-style avalanche it would be a fallaway slam, except it's just more of a regular slam onto the canvas. 
and then a rebound German suplex bridge for a near fall. Danielson then entered a counter sequence and ended it with a psycho knee for the win. After the bell, MJF appeared on the big screen, calling back to Brian's old promos, referring to the fans as fickle for booing him now. He said Danielson has only dealt with a masked MJF, but the mask is slipping off to reveal a monster. The camera went back to Brian, who just kind of looked around as confused as everyone else. The promo from MJF got zero reaction. MJF later paid Brian Cage to fight Brian Danielson and break his arm. He slapped Cage, who started choking him out before being calmed down by the money and the chance to use that anger against Danielson next week. So at least we got an explanation for that match happening next week. Anyway, look, it was outstanding wrestling, Bella Bell, basically a pay-per-view match on TV. Every facet of it was executed perfectly. I went 4.5 stars and an A. And this is coming after, let's not forget, the Konosuke Takeshka match from with Brian last week. We're just being spoiled, seeing top-tier wrestling from Danielson against some of the best wrestlers in the world in consecutive weeks. Uh, but this is another hurdle, of course, for him to get past, and he did. MJF's promo, man, I don't know what's going on with him recently. It did not advance the story any further. It didn't make me feel or care or really think anything. The whole deal with, I wear a mask and I'm a monster and I'm the devil. I mean, how much of a devil is this this guy? He's a regular wrestling heel. Like, I don't get why they keep harping on that kind of aspect of it. When he's, I mean, sure, okay, he did punch William Regal in the back of the head with brass knuckles. A guy that has known you know, brainstem and, and and spine issues. Yes, that was devilish, I will admit. But the rest of what he does is regular wrestling heel shit. And like, how is he a monster? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And why do you have MJF at the show to do a taped or a, a video promo and a backstage segment and you don't bring him out in front of the crowd? This is your world champion. I just don't understand this type of stuff. And apparently Adam Cole was backstage as well. But there was a promo package for him that highlighted his return last week with him repeating exactly the same stuff that he said. And Adam Cole didn't appear in front of the crowd during Dynamite. AEW, they have this huge issue capitalizing on momentum. And it's been consistent throughout the entire history of the company. Why would you bring Cole back last week and then not have him appear on TV at all this week? Why have MJF win the title and then have him skip the first Dynamite after the pay-per-view. Why have him now as the champion if he's not going to be out in front of the crowd when he is in attendance at the show? This shit just does not make any sense. And we have to directly compare it to WWE. Think about them. I think the number of times Roman Reigns has been live at a show and not appeared in front of the crowd, and we're talking about a multi-year title run, you can count on one hand. He's either not there, in which he doesn't show up, or he is there and he generally shows up in front of the crowd. This AEW crowd would have exploded if Cole came out and started maybe developing his first feud. Huge fail with Adam Cole and a huge fail with MJF. Again, the promo from MJF got zero reaction from the crowd. On Rampage, we had a TNT title match, Darby Allen defending against Juice Robinson. Darby dodged a cannonball in the corner, coming back with a code red. Juice stopped a coffin drop attempt and clothesline Darby hanging off the top rope. Then he hit a random jackhammer, which was kind of cool. Uh, Darby then countered a superplex with a falling avalanche scorpion death drop off the ropes. One of the two best moves I saw the entire week. He added the coffin drop immediately after that and got the win. Sting walked out after Tony Schiavone did his stupid Sting announce. 
and literally nothing else happened. Solid match, bell to bell. Love the finish. Super inventive countering into the Scorpion Death Drop off of the ropes in that move that I mentioned. On Dynamite, we had another TNT title match, Darby defending against Kushida. This was another open challenge that was never actually open because a match was just made. So I don't know why they keep calling it an open challenge. It's really just an explanation for a champion to have a match against someone without a storyline reason. That's really all it is. Uh, Within AEW, that is. Kushida got a 30-second video about 15 minutes into Dynamite, and that was the entire build for the match. Sting and NJPW Dojo members joined at ringside. Darby hit a code red and took out the Dojo guys with a cannonball. Kushida drove him with a cross arm breaker, shoulder first into the floor, and he continued attacking the shoulder for the duration of the match. Darby came back with his flip over stunner on the apron. He seated Kushida in a chair at ringside and tried a shotgun dropkick off the top rope, but Kushida instead caught him with an arm bar for a submission attempt that obviously would not have counted since it was outside. Kushida then did an avalanche Spanish fly style arm drag in a crazy spot and put in the hoverboard lock, which is his finisher. The dojo guys threw a white towel at Sting, suggesting he end the match, but Sting wiped his face and threw the towel into the crowd. And right as he did that, Darby just rolled out of the hoverboard lock and immediately locked in, I believe it's Last Supper is what it's called, the pinning combination where he traps him on the canvas for the title retention. This was the third of three fantastic matches on Dynamite. And that's what AEW has really been doing since the start of the year, just giving us bangers. The match quality made up for there being zero storyline. I went four stars and an A minus, but I could watch that again and go 4.25. I'm I'm not sure it wasn't an A, but it was at least an A minus. If Darby's going to sell this shoulder injury going forward, the whole thing was worthwhile. If not, then it was just a good match. Either way, strong main event to the show. On Rampage, Ruby Soho and Willow Nightingale fought Ty Mello and Anna JAS in a street fight. The faces wore purple camo pants like they were the Dudley boys. Anna put Ruby in a trash can before Ty double stomped her off the ring apron. Ruby then blatantly bladed and started bleeding profusely, and they used a camera cut to hide this. Willow took a gory bomb into a trash can. Anna put faked barbed wire around her arm and tried Queenslayer, but Ruby broke it with chain fist punches to the head. Willow jumped in as the base for a super duperplex into three chairs flat on the canvas. Willow hit Ty with a spinebuster and Anna with a cannonball into a trash can. Then she hit a Death Valley driver into the apron. And finally, she tried the Dudley bomb off the stage only to completely miss. She sat on the table and powerbombed Anna, I think into the concrete floor. Back at the ring, Ty hit a gotch pile driver on Ruby off the apron through a table. And somehow that was a false finish. Mello poured out thumbtacks. Ruby weakly threw some in her face, threw her into a chair that was propped in the corner and hit Destination Unknown into the tax for the win. Then Ruby did the fake body shake thing that some people do after a hardcore match. Really mixed feelings on this. Perhaps I missed why this needed to be a violent street fight, but it really felt like the stipulation came out of nowhere. The blading was ridiculous, mostly because it didn't come as the result of a spot that would create bleeding or a gash. If it came naturally within the course of the match, someone uses a fork or punches you in the head with a chain, something that happened later in the match after she had already bladed. If something like that happens or someone rubs barbed wire across your head and then you blade, it makes all the sense in the world and I would have been totally okay with it. Instead, it was blood like 60 seconds into the match for the sake of blood. And I'm always going to be against that. The botched Dudley spot was also insanely dangerous. 
but there's really no taking away from the risks the women took for our entertainment, and there were a number of really solid spots in and around the ring. So I'll call it a success overall. It was also rightfully placed in the main event, deserving main event match. But when you're bloodletting for 500,000 viewers on a Friday night near 11 p.m. on TNT, maybe rethink whether that's necessary. That's the best thing I can say. On Dynamite, Tony Storm fought Willow Nightingale. Soraya called Takaru Shida's move with the kendo stick, stupid and idiotic in a backstage segment that all three women were there. Uh, Storm talked about the difference between the AEW homegrown talent and them, who all have more experience that has benefited them in their careers. Then Soraya told Shida to stay backstage during the match. Shida didn't listen, and she came out at the midway point with a kendo stick. Willow hit a great spinebuster and shotgun dropkick, but missed a cannonball in the corner and ate a hip attack plus a tornado DDT. Willow then hit her cannonball when Soraya jumped onto the ring apron to distract. That allowed Storm to roll up Nightingale and get the win. Soraya then immediately attacked Willow after the bell in a clear heel turn. Shida was shocked, and Ruby Soho, who was also a AEW talent that came from elsewhere first, she came in with, to make the save, with Soraya basically questioning why she would do that, thinking that she should have her back and Tony Storm's back. Now, I'm not sure I love the forced AEW versus Outsiders angle, given these women literally gave up careers in WWE to come to AEW. Now, Ruby, of course, got fired, but Tony quit and Soraya decided not to renew her contract, even though she claims Triple H was willing to let her wrestle. It also feels repetitive given similar things have been said ad nauseum in the men's division over the last three years. Now, all that said, the heel turn, while not a surprise, was well executed with immediate disdain coming from the fans. You have to pick an ultra babyface if you're going to have a babyface turn like that. And Willow was the perfect person to use in that spot. This also does, to some degree, bring back the mercedes Monet conversation. Given she's a heel in New Japan, and she would also, of course, be an outsider. I'm not saying that's going to happen. There's no talk about it whatsoever. She would theoretically fit into that storyline. And as I mentioned, when she did not show up in Los Angeles for that special dynamite, the next time it would make sense to bring her in would be Revolution, which I believe is early March. I think that's also after her initial wave of New Japan and stardom dates are over. So let's just remember the Silver King is kind of pointing this out. It might possibly come to fruition. Anyway, the heel turn makes sense, I presume. Given Jamie Hayter is already getting cheered as a heel, she and Britt may be able to slide right into a babyface role. So I am interested to see how they develop this over the coming weeks. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks fought top flight. The Bucks had armbands for Jay. They hit risky business for a near fall. Darius Martin got a nice hot tag with a standing Spanish fly. The Neophytes stomped the Melter Driver and went on a run hitting a springboard-assisted powerbomb. Inverted DDT for a broken fall. That was the spot of the entire week. Exceptional move. It should be a finisher. Nick Jackson then hit an immediate succession, a flinging X-Factor, moonsault off the apron, and flinging Canadian Destroyer. The Bucks then kissed their armband and hit a doomsday device to honor the Briscoes in a broken fall. Dante ate stereo super kicks on an attempted springboard outside, but ducked a BTE trigger, catching Matt Jackson in a pinning combination for the upset win. Commentary did a great job putting Type Flight over after this while excusing the Bucks' loss simultaneously as them being worn out from the seven-match series. And it was an excellent match with plenty of tagging despite a reliance on the flips and stuff. Super entertaining, 3.75 stars, B+. Definitely intrigued to see where they take this. My presumption is AR Fox just joins them and they get a trio's title match in the near future. 
On Rampage, the acclaimed entered with Max Caster dropping a blood money line, referencing the fake Saudi Arabia report. They were out to cement themselves in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And if you remember last week, I just called total bullshit on this. It did not make a shred of sense to me. So it was really nice to see that I was right. And it was just completely a fake gimmick that they did in the arena. They didn't even go out to the Hollywood Walk of Fame or anything like that. Anyway, uh, they started putting scissors in the cement. That's what they were going to do. When Gun Club interrupted talking shit, saying they should be getting the honor, so Billy Gunn agreed, and his sons stupidly turned their backs to the faces. When they stretched out their hands, they got pantsed with their asses pushed into the cement. And that was the whole segment. I swear, every time one of these is attempted with acclaimed, it just falls short. The whole conceptualization and execution of this, for me at least, was just a miss. On Dynamite, Gun Club yelled about being embarrassed, and they screamed over the acclaimed's entrance to prevent Caster from doing a rap. So Caster told production to cut their mic and he did a mediocre rap that was bleeped at the end. The four guys brawled with Billy pushing them all apart. He criticized his sons for making asses of themselves and told the acclaimed they needed to start acting like champions. This is resulting in a family therapy session next week. Total eye roll of a segment. It was even worse than the Rampage one. I think there's a chance though that the family therapy thing works. So I'm gonna hold out hope that that saves this. Clearly we'll get a title match in the near future. On Dynamite, Ricky Starks fought Jake Hager. Starks hit a butte of a tornado DDT. Hager eventually collided with Cool Hand, who tried to interfere on the apron. That allowed Starks to hit the spear for the win. JS tried attacking, but Ricky ran into the crowd to avoid them. Chris Jericho was furious backstage. He promised to end the feud next week in a tag team match with him and Sammy Guevara against Starks and Action Andretti. Daniel Garcia asked if he could take Sammy's spot, and Guevara agreed as long as he beat Andretti one-on-one on Rampage. So he kept hugging Garcia. He also gave him new black leather pants to improve his gear. The result here was unquestioned, but Hager definitely helped make Starks look good on the journey. And even though I'm exhausted with JAS, I'm just done with them. The backstage segment was kind of fun. And I like the Guevara and Garcia dynamic. I'm interested to see what they do with that. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston and Ortiz fought Kings of the Black Throne. Ortiz flew in to prevent Black Mass only to eat a pump knee for his troubles. Buddy Matthews with a chair and Julia Hart ran down as Eddie got up on Malachi. Eddie stopped the chair usage, but Ortiz thought he was going to hit Julia with it. So they argued. Black delivered Black Mass with Ortiz ducking and Kingston taking it in the face. Buddy then choked out Ortiz at ringside after the bell. Ortiz is close friends with Eddie yet thinks he would actually use a chair on a woman, particularly when he entered the match frustrated that House of Black was seemingly recruiting Kingston, but not him, yet Eddie's gonna use the chair on them. I I thought the whole thing was nonsensical. I, I don't get it at all. The match was nothing. It just seems like a waste of time. On Rampage, Renee Paquette asked Swerve Strickland to actually explain the purpose of Mogul Affiliates. And I did one of those, like the Michael Scott uh, meme where he puts his hands under his chin and sits forward because he really wants to hear the answer. So that was me. I was like, okay, cool, let's hear it. So Swerve rambled, he said nothing. And then he introduced a couple people from Bad Boy, which I legitimately did not think was still a label. Those guys didn't say anything either. Then Swerve said they would be the most violent and gruesome group ever in AEW. So Renee literally asked, what is your deal? And Swerve had no answer. It tells you all you need to know about mogul affiliates. And the gimmick of Swerve just appearing every week with new D-list rappers, sometimes C-list rappers, it is just tired at this point. Like we get it. He knows people in the industry. AEW is helping him make connections. I gotta remind you all when I criticize this stuff, 
I really like Swerve. He's probably one of my favorite wrestlers. My interview with him when an hour after he got signed with AEW, we were the first person, uh, the first uh, podcast, first anything that he spoke to after making his AEW debut. We are Swerve Marks on this podcast. And yet I don't get anything that's going on with Mogul Affiliates and this current gimmick. It's just really, really bad. On Rampage, Renee interviewed Paul Walter Hauser, who won a Golden Globe last week. I'd already discussed that. He professed his love for professional wrestling. He said he tries to bypass Connecticut and head straight to Jacksonville, which no one in the world has ever said. I want to make very clear. Because in AEW, you never know what's going to happen. Can you imagine the outrage if WWE put a celebrity on TV and either asked or allowed them to talk shit about AEW? Such an eye roll. Danhausen came out wanting the Golden Globe. Then the Jeff Jarrett crew entered. Despite what I just said, Hauser was actually great shooting a couple insults at Jarrett. Then he hit Sanjay Dutt only to get decked by Jay Lethal. Satnam Singh backed his body into Danhausen, keeping him in the corner. And Jarrett did a guitar shot over Hauser's head. Credit to him for taking that bump. Lethal was about to drill Danhausen with the award when best friends ran in with the heels, scurrying and stealing the award. Good on Hauser for taking the bump. I don't have much else to say about it. It's wild that these guys continue to get so much TV time. Speaking of that, on Dynamite, we had Orange Cassidy against Lethal. This opened the show. Jarrett's crew was barred from ringside before the show, so they walked through the crowd to watch from the front row. Danhausen then walked up as arena security to check their tickets, with best friends walking across the entire front row with popcorn and beers, taking seats behind the heels. And the whole time, I'm sitting there thinking, where's the Golden Globe? Because they stole it on Rampage, so one would think that they would be having having it and showing it off, right? Never appeared. Orange kept rolling away as Lethal was unable to hit an elbow drop out of each corner. Cassidy countered into Stun Dog Millionaire. Lethal caught Orange flying with an awesome backbreaker into a facebuster combination, which was a really cool sequence. I've never seen someone do that before. Orange then avoided lethal injection once, but ate a second attempt, rolling outside the ring. Trent Beretta dumped popcorn onto Jarrett, who tried handing his guitar to Lethal behind the referee's back. The referee did get involved though, so Danhausen stole the guitar with Lethal chasing him around and then into the ring where he got caught with Orange Punch for the babyface win and a nice crowd pop in the finish. After the bell, Singh grabbed and released Best Friends by the throat because Dutt would have been fired by stipulation if he got involved. Orange did his comedy stuff as a taunt and that was it. Fun opening match from an entertainment standpoint, the crowd loved it. It's just not something that's going to have me singing its praise because look, Everyone has their biases and everyone has things they like and don't like. I'm completely sick of every single person involved in this feud. Literally all eight of them. I just want them off my screen. And that includes Orange. The act is just getting really stale for me. But I'm not going to sit here and criticize anyone else for liking it. So if you liked it, I get it. It was fun. It was funny. There was some good wrestling, not great wrestling, different strokes, all that stuff. And then lastly, on Rampage, Jade Cargill said Red Velvet was out of the baddies. No shit. Uh, She was also excited about winning her 50th match and remaining undefeated in the near future. It felt like a forced effort just to put her on Rampage. Nothing was gained from it. And there were like three or four different promo segments across both shows, including with Powerhouse Hobbs. I don't even want to waste time discussing them because nothing was said and they didn't develop into anything. So why should we spend time on the podcast talking about it? And that is it from AEW. Like I said, it was kind of a mixed bag. The wrestling, unquestionably great. A number of matches, really true bangers, especially on Dynamite. Uh, But from a storytelling standpoint, 
I do like what they're doing with the women. There's at least something interesting going on, but it really seems to be a singular storyline with them, as is usually the case. And with Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy, these are two singles champions. It's just, they just keep fighting people, whoever wants to challenge them. And that's really the extent of what those storylines are. There is something obviously going with MJF and Brian Danielson, but it's repetitive. It's another MJF competitor jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop until they get to fight him at a pay-per-view. And with the Hangman and Mock stuff, you know, we were critical about it uh, last week, this week, step in the right direction. We'll see how it progresses as AEW moves forward towards revolution. So that is it for today's show. Of course, we had plenty to talk about across NXT and AEW, and we have an absolutely loaded week coming up for you next week. On Tuesday, we will be back with our WWE Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview. We will also have some news items from the world of WWE to discuss on that show. Next week, same bat time, same bat channel on Thursday will be your next AEW and NXT show. And then on Saturday night, as soon as the show goes off the air, we will have a 2023 Royal Rumble instant analysis podcast. And if you want to take it one bit further, the following Tuesday, not our next WWE episode, but two from now will be episode 400 of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast barring any breaking news forcing us to do an instant reaction episode. So there is so much still coming for you with Getting Over before the month is out. You do not want to miss any of it. On the way out here, allow me to remind you that this podcast is So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and much more. Thank you all for joining us for this latest edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.